There's something kind of admirable and appealing about John. We talked about a little bit about him last week. I want to dovetail on that, not from the book of Mark, from the book of John. If you would turn with me, please, to John chapter 3. The book of John was not written by John the Baptist. The book of John was written by John the Apostle of Jesus, who is different than John the Baptist. It was a common name at that point in time, especially when you translate it into the Greek, which we now get to John. Um, if you would turn with me to the book of John, John chapter number 3, there's a few verses there that are really important. There's nothing fancy about John. He was the one who preached out in the desert instead of in the city, preached in the desert where, I mean, who would want to preach in the desert? Think of what that would do to your voice. He baptized people out in the desert. He wore camel's skin, camel's hair of some sort, clothes made from camel's hair is what one, uh, one writer said, and he ate locusts. You know I'm into Bible characterization. I thought about it. And I thought, where in the world would I get clothes made of camel's hair? And then the second thought came to me, Dude, I live in Glendale. I'm not eating locusts. <laughs> so then I thought I could dress up some ranger type. Every church has got one boy who would eat grasshoppers if you challenged him and dared him. But I decided I wouldn't do that either. You would just get the picture from me telling you that. Something about John that, that draws me to him, even though there was nothing really about him that should draw me to him. He was the one who everybody else was starting to write news stories about Jesus and they went and asked John, John, what do you think about that? John said, that's cool. I'm fine with that. In our age of chest thumping and four color brochures that say, look at my miraculous ministry and YouTube viral sensations from things that don't really deserve attention. In this kind of an age, it's, and everybody's clamoring for attention, it's almost impossible for me to imagine a guy like John who willingly says, I'm okay with being number two. I'm okay with being anonymous and living in the shadows and in the background. There's something about him, though, that draws me to him. A year ago, we were um, in, I believe it was Culver's, and we saw a cake that was decorated. You know, usually it was around Father's Day, and usually you'd see number one dad or something like that. This cake said number two dad. <laughs> I figured at least they were thinking. Maybe I don't rise to number one. But at least they put some thought, and it wasn't one of those platitudes where just everybody must be the number one dad. Well, I'm not going to even go there. I'm just going to move on. <laughs> Something about John, however, that draws me to him. Something about the way he lived and the way he ministered and who he was. A man who was the, uh, his parents were related to Jesus' mother. Elizabeth and, and Mary were cousins. So that would make, make Jesus and John, what, second cousins, third cousins, something like that. Or is that first cousins once removed or second cousins twice removed? Or I'm really confused. Somehow they're related. And in that culture, they would have spent a lot of time together because of that. So not only was John willing to play second fiddle to Jesus, he was the older cousin playing second fiddle to Jesus. I got some cousins... I don't mind playing second fiddle to Greg and Jeff. There's no way I'm playing second fiddle to Doug. He's the younger cousin. He doesn't deserve that kind of limelight. You understand if you have a younger brother, correct? The younger brother, he doesn't get the attention. It's the older one who gets all of that. That's just kind of the way life is supposed to go. But John was more than willing, not just to allow it to happen, but to encourage it. And to say, this is the way it ought to be. And so when they came asking him, who are you? John's reply was actually rather simple. 
And it happens over and over again in each of the Gospels who record the question and record the answer once he says, I'm a voice. Another time he says, I'm a messenger. Another person records him as saying, I'm the setup guy. I'm the guy who goes into town before the guy really comes into town. And I'm the one who has to go in and determine we're eating at Miss Katie's Diner and not at the Fister Hotel and we're doing all these things. That's me. I'm the setup guy. I have to be the difficult guy to make sure the security is in order and all of that stuff so that the real fun, charismatic guy can come along. That's John, the setup guy. And over and over again, he said things like we read in John chapter 3. John replied, a man can receive only what is given him from heaven. Verse number 30. Speaking of Jesus, John says, He must become greater, and I must become less. Some translations translate that He must increase, but I must decrease. When others were trying to fight for the limelight, and all the apostles were trying to say, Hey, uh, Jesus, when you get into your kingdom, can I sit on your right hand? And your brother, can, can we have that kind of a place of importance? There's John the Baptist, not one of those twelve, willingly stepping back, taking a back seat, saying, I'm cool with being number two. I'm cool with not being in the limelight. I'm cool with just being exactly who God created me to, do, to be, to do what is asked without hesitation. That's what John did, and that's what I would encourage you to do. As you endeavor to live for God and to leave a legacy for those around you, I would encourage you to do what is asked without hesitation. John had to make, was asked to do a difficult task. The opening act. Nobody remembers who is second string or second chair violin when they go to the concert. Nobody remembers who is the person who plays baritone saxophone. How do I know? Because I did and nobody remembered it. They only remember the tuba players if you go to Ohio State and the University of Wisconsin because they elevate tuba players to almost godlike status. Nobody else remembers people like that. It's the opening act. You notice the band who plays before the band who plays before the band that everyone came to see? That was John. And he didn't care. He didn't care that he had to introduce people to Jesus and introduce Jesus on the scene and then step aside. And he knew when his time to do that was up. And he did what was asked of him without hesitation, which is our task. To be willing to play second team, second chair. To be vice president instead of president. Assistant. Even though being assistant to anyone can be a difficult task. You get very little credit even though you work just as hard as the person whose name is on the top. But I'm telling you, it is what John did and it is what you ought to do also in following his pattern because that is what Jesus commended him for. Doing what was asked of him without hesitation. Willingly ministering for God and for God's glory alone. It's what he challenges us to do. Willingly minister and touch other people's lives for God's glory alone. When others wanted to say that John was the Christ, John wanted to nothing to do with such talk. His humility would not allow him to accept credit for things that were not his to accept the credit for. In humility, he proclaimed who the Christ was and who the Christ was not. And when they asked him, 
Are you the Christ? He said, I can only give what I'm given from God. And God didn't give me to do that. We get in trouble when we attempt to help God along on this. When we take the job that God never intended for us to take because we thought it would be better. And then we discover we have to work every time that the church doors are open. We get in trouble when we do that. Then we wake up one day and we wonder, why do our kids hate God? You trained them that way. We get in trouble every time we try to do things for our own glory. Everyone who is a messenger struggles with this. Everyone who's good at being a messenger struggles with the fact that they think they ought to be number one. That they ought to receive the pat on the back. What was it that mom used to tell me? You're never, you're never as good as everybody says when they're walking out of church and you're never as bad as some will tell you either. You're somewhere in between there. That's probably pretty accurate. I think mom knew what she was talking about when she told me that. It, it works really well to say I'm willing to do what God asks without hesitation and for His glory alone because every time I want to do things for my glory, I make really bad decisions. Having walked with God now a couple of years, I can tell you that there have been times when I've tried to do things for my glory rather than His. And those have been just disastrous choices. They can take months, if not years, to recover from when you make a choice like that. How much better to say I'm going to put God first and I'm going to do things His way. And I'm going to see what happens because of that. Willingly minister for God's glory alone, not for your own. Doing what He wants you to do. And just let Him take care of everything else. That's what John was willing to do. John was willing to put his hope in a life that was yet to come. He didn't care much about where he lived. He didn't care about what he wore. He didn't care about what he ate. Obviously, who chooses locusts? My grandpa used to say, I, I think he said this because I'm a picky eater. Not just was, I still am. And my grandpa prided himself on the fact that he could eat anything if he were hungry enough. So we, being, you know, teenage grandsons and grandkids, we would always put that to the test. I mean, not literally, we didn't bring the bugs in the house. Are you kidding me? Grandma would have killed me. Uh, but, but we would test this, and so we'd ask him, well, Grandpa, what about ants? Oh, I reckon that if you put them in a little bit of chocolate or fried them up and I was hungry enough, I could do it. So we went through this whole list of things, and then he would always pause, and he'd look at us and he'd say, Gentlemen, notice I said, if I was hungry enough. You'd have to be really hungry to eat locusts or on a ranger camp out, I think. Because you're not going to do it unless those are the conditions. Nobody did. How many of you, when you are on the drive home today and you're saying, Hey, Mom, what's for lunch? You're hoping for locust. <laughs> right on top of the grilled cheese sandwich, right in between there, between the cheese and the bread, we're going to put a few locusts, a little bit of grasshoppers. We're going to just fry them up there and see what happens. John, he wasn't particularly concerned about what he ate. And I can only come up with one explanation for that. Well, two. One, he was just completely psychotic. But there's no evidence in the Bible that anyone thought he was psychotic. The other explanation is he just didn't care. He had discovered that the secret to life is to not care very much about life here. And to care a whole lot about life up there. 
Nothing about what people thought of him. Not much about what people said about him. As long as he could do what God wanted him to do and what God asked him to do, that was okay. I used to keep a folder. I have not since trimmed my files. I used to keep a folder that was called Weird Mail. Pastors get a a whole host of strange and weird mail. People who you've never met before who send you these prophetic letters where God gave them a word. And clearly, they started with dear brother, so they were really concerned about you. They obviously mailed this to anyone and everyone they could think of. And some of those are okay. I mean, they're not really far out there, but some of them are just so bizarre that you can't do anything but laugh. So when in the days in which I had staff and a secretary, the instructions about the mail were simple. I only want to see what has to come to my desk. And all of the weird mail sent through. <laughs> And I would keep a stack of... God didn't call you to be that kind of strange where everybody looks and says, Really? I don't, I don't think that's what God meant. And that's not what I mean when I'm telling you that. I'm not, I don't mean standing out on a street corner on 13th and Locust at 10 o'clock at night thumping a Bible. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking, though, about doing what God asks you to do regardless of whether or not one person at work says they're not going to be your friend anymore regardless of whether or not the person who sits in front of you in history class thinks that you're a little bit odd. In fact, I added a few people to my hero list this last week. People who I had known since they were in third, fourth grade. They're now graduating from high school. And uh, they went way up on my list because my daughter told me that one of them is skipping graduation because it starts at one and church won't be done by the end of one. So I'm not going. The logic would say it's only one Sunday. I recall I taught Sunday school and then left the morning service after that so I could go to my high school graduation. I could have been very sympathetic with making a different choice. Rachel then told me about other people who protested, some loudly, some not so loudly, about the timing of that graduation ceremony I am going to. I suddenly respected those people a whole lot more because they understood what life was about. They understood that you put your hope in Jesus Christ and you live that way. And that if your hope is really in Him, your choices will reflect that. Even for one who had so much hope for this life, John could have had so much hope. He had so much going for him. Think of if he'd asked for just a dollar from everyone who came out. They were coming out by the thousands to hear him preach. If he had just talked about the miracle of seed faith, think of what he could have driven. He laughs. He gave me that book, The Miracle of Seed Faith. He gave me four copies of it. <laughs> I needed something to tuck underneath the, the bookshelves that were leaning. If... He had, uh, John had no reason to be concerned about this life. His only concern was about putting Jesus first. And he put Jesus first in every area of his life. The total package in his actions and his attitudes and his words. Every time you read about Jesus or you hear, uh, I'm sorry, about John or you hear about him, he was always putting Jesus above himself. He's always doing exactly what he's asked to do as a forerunner, proclaiming the coming of the king, but not willing to become the king. As a voice, but not willing to be the one who initiated the message, as a messenger. 
In one place he says, look, I'm not the most, it's my own wedding day and I'm not the most important person there. That's what he's trying to describe. I'm not the most important one in the room. There's someone far greater and far better than me. And he did it by what he said and by how he lived. And when his own followers came and said, you know, we think we'd kind of like to follow Jesus. John said, blood in, blood out, dude. What do you think? No, uh, John said, that's the way it's supposed to be. You're supposed to follow him. Go ahead and go. That's the way I want it to be. He was willing to be down to absolutely no one left. And so John was thrown in prison for another man's wife. Apparently there's more than one person who did that. Right, John Bogey? <laughs> was thrown in prison for, uh, for another man's wife. And while he was in prison, a couple of his followers came and said, um, you know, we got a question for you. This Jesus guy, he, uh, people are saying he's the Christ. What do you think? What John say? He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He proclaims the kingdom of God. Could anyone possibly do more than this man? He is the Christ. Go follow him. And as I reflected on my life and as I reflected on the legacy which I have been given, I discovered that I stand in a long line of many generations who have tried to say the same thing. We've tried to say He is the Christ. He's the one we follow. And of all the things we learn from our parents, and we learn a lot from our parents, we learn how to talk, we learn how to walk. They say, I walk like Him. My toes pointed out and I don't go straight. I kind of go straight with looking like I'm going in two different directions. When you think about it, as we get older, everybody says this. As you get a little bit older, somewhere around my age, I'm 42, you look back and you start to say, oh, wait a minute, my parents cough that way. I think I'll do it a little differently. <laughs> Just kind of happens. Is it genetic? Is it not genetic? I don't know. I'm going to save that for the psychology classroom. I'm just going to tell you that we learn a lot from our parents. You can't escape that, parents. Your kids are learning for better or for worse from you. But here's what you can recognize. That in that you are leaving a legacy. And the only question for you is what will be in that legacy? Where did I learn to put Jesus first? From hearing a story about a man who said when he was a sophomore in high school, I'm going to dedicate myself to God and I'm going to dedicate my trombone to God. I'm only going to play it in church and not in the high school band next year. That's where I learned to put it first because I saw the trombone and I heard my father play it. Where did I learn to put God first? From a story about what it took to go through Bible school. North Central um, Bible College, was it? North Central Bible Institute or Bible College? In one of those, it was a little a while ago, a year or two ago, and there used to be a Dairy Queen across the park, Right? From, there was only one, if you've been there, there was only one hall in those days. Uh, it's now Miller Hall. And across the park, there was a Dairy Queen. And how much was a hot dog at Dairy Queen? Like a quarter, I think is the story I've heard. 20 cents, 20 cents, and a soda, something like that. And the whole, the whole meal would come to like 30 cents. 
And that's what Grandma ate. That's what my mom ate to get herself through a summer in Bible college because she'd pledged herself to Jesus. And when I heard those stories, I knew that following God must be important. When I saw my own grandfather go into the church where he, after he retired, he went into church and he said, they got more people in that choir than I ever pastored in my entire life. I knew following Jesus must be important. When I'd come home with mounds and mounds of homework and my parents would say, it's time for church. And I'd say, I got homework. And they would say, bring the homework along. You can do it until church starts. And when church is over, you can start up again. I knew that following Jesus must be important and schoolwork must not be as important. Some more kids are saying, yes, I always knew it wasn't that important. <laughs> Friends, it behooves you to... It, there's a good word for you. It behooves you to follow that up if you're going to live that way with pretty good grades. Uh, I, I knew that there were things more important in life and that I was supposed to live a certain way. Because that's how you followed God. Now you may be saying, Pastor Bruce, is going to church really that important? I guess I would want to reply to that with, with a, question, a couple of questions of my own. That was a strategy I grew up with. That's the strategy I've parented with. What's yours? How's that working? I can tell you how mine works. There's ten generations of coaches who were taught that there was a day to go to church and that's when you went. At least ten. I can't. There's trouble going back farther than that. We have to go to Scotland and go back farther than that. That's, uh, that's the day you go to church, and that's the day you set aside to say, I live for God. I know it's a little bit like preaching to the choir because obviously you're here. You believe in the importance of it. I'm only telling you that and using that as an example to tell you, put God first in everything. And I'm telling you, if you don't, at least your kids will know that you don't. Because our kids have this keen ability to see through what we say and to watch what we do. And so the only time that you pray is here on a Sunday, they'll know that. If the only time you really live for God is when you come into this building, they'll see that. That's why it was so important to my sister who replied to my question of, what would you learn from Dad? With the same person who stood in the pulpit on Sunday was the same person who made my lunch before I went to school on Monday. And that kind of consistency of life says, I'm going to put Jesus first in every area of my life. Literally, my parents will have spent it all and I will probably get nothing. It's a joke, but with all jokes, uh, there's always a touch of reality. That's just kind of the way it is. You might be in the same boat. That doesn't mean, however, that I get nothing. What a shame if when their will was read, I inherited millions. But I was never taught to live for God. Rather, I was taught that in the service of the king... You ought to be willing to give someone something for nothing and just let God take care of it. I was taught in the service of the king that the paycheck was not the most important thing in your life. Important, yes, but not the most important thing. And I was taught that when difficult times came, the only thing you ever turned to was to Jesus himself.
My mom used to say that we were expected in school to do our best. Not make great grades, but to do our best. That was the standard. Just do your best. Just if there had only been that one quiz when I was a, a junior, think of... And that one assignment I told you about, man, I'm still kicking myself about that one assignment my freshman year. I could have done better, should have done better, and oh, the difference it would have made. If I could pass that legacy on of just do your best in school, that would be great. Rachel, just do your best. It's a little late, but oh well. (laughs) She is what she is, and... Graduates in the position in her class where she graduates and it's fantastic and we're proud of her. But you know, if that's all we passed on, that wouldn't be very much. There has to be something more that you pass on to your children. I remember well last year on Father's Day, Pastor Mark was gone and Pastor Pete preached. Had his whole family here, baptized two of your kids. He said essentially the same thing. Leave a legacy for your children. Follow God and teach them to do the same. Hey, if you're sitting close to a dad, just kind of pat him on the back. Just pat him on the back. You know why? Good for you, dad. Good for you, Kenan. You brought your family to church today. You're leaving the legacy you're supposed to leave. Dads, that's what you're supposed to do. Bring your kids and say, this is how we live. We follow Jesus. And you don't end up with regrets when you do that. You just say, we want to do our best to put him first. Would you pray with me?